Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Hello, today we are on Case Closed uh, on contingency fees. My name is Sean Kuhn, Certified Financial Fiduciary. And today we have Heather Schulzman on, or Schlossman, I'm sorry. And Heather, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, uh, maybe where you went to school, things you like um, in your practice. Sure. Thank you, Sean. And I appreciate the opportunity to join you this morning. Um, as Sean said, my, my name is Heather Schlossman. I'm an attorney in the Kansas City area. I am a native Kansas City, and I grew up um, in Kansas City, went to public high school here, did my undergraduate at Duke University, graduated from college and thought that I would be a professor of Spanish literature. It's a very, very uh, static field because my specialty was 19th century Spanish prose. But while I was working in that field or towards that field, I got interested in uh, in the legal field through some volunteer work that I was doing when I was living in D.C. So I went to law school at Washington University in St. Louis, because at the time I thought I wanted to be an immigration lawyer. And there was, and I believe still is, um, uh, an immigration professor there who helped write the code. And he's a really great guy, but I really hated immigration law. So uh, while I was there, though, um, I got interested in the civil rights work, and that's what I'm doing now. We uh, we specialize in representing employees in discrimination claims and wage and hour claims and pretty much anything that happens in the workplace. So most of that work is done on a contingent fee because most folks just don't, most individuals aren't financially able to pay for hourly litigation, which can get pretty expensive. So most of those statutes are fee shifting statutes, which um, gives people access to the courts. I see. I see. That's interesting. Um so Duke University, huh? Big basketball yeah, school as well. That's right. Although not this year, but yes. Yeah. So what led you to Duke? What? How'd you get there? And there was <laughs> there was a professor there that I really wanted to study international relations with, and um, it just I I had read some of the stuff that he had written, and I thought that would be a really good fit for me. Um, and I, you know, I liked the school and, um, when I got there, you know, you, you know how it is when you're 18, you think, you know what you want to do, but then things change. Right. So, so that, that's gotta be overwhelming stepping on campus the first day there, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. It definitely was. So for sure. So, um, do you deal with a lot of ERISA then with what you do? With ERISA cases? Yes. Actually, we don't handle ERISA cases. You know, the, the joke in our office is we throw up our hands and run screaming from the room with ERISA cases because they are very specialized and very technical. So there are lawyers who do that, and that's pretty much all they do. They do like short-term disability coverage and ERISA-type claims. We keep our practice focused. We're a small law firm. I mean, you're officially talking to one-third of the law firm. You know, one of the best pieces of advice we got when we opened our doors going on 15 years ago now was don't dabble, you know, stay in your lane, pick an area that you're good at and continue to do that. It's not that you can't learn a new area of law. It's that it's not efficient to do that with the kind of work that we do, you know, in contingent fee litigation, you're essentially working for free 
because you believe that a claim has merit and you're going to be able to get the claim settled or win a trial. So it doesn't make sense to be working for free if part of that time is learning a new area of law. So, you know, our claims focus on um, Title VII discrimination type claims, uh, disability claims under the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Family Medical Leave Act. And then we do quite a bit of wage and hour litigation, both at the state and the federal uh, stage. I see. I see. So tell us a little bit about your law firm. Um, You said it's a small law firm. So how many uh, partners are there? There's two partners, uh, two lawyers, uh, myself and then my partner, Mark Dugan. And then we have a part time paralegal, Julie Rose, who uh, is wonderful. Um, She doesn't work full time. And I I think it's it's a good fit for all of us. Um, I see. But we both came from. Mark came from a big firm and I came from a government office. And, you know, both of us, I think, had good experiences where we were and learned a lot. But one of the things we both wanted to bring to our practice was kind of that smaller feel that when somebody hires us, I'm the person you're going to get. If you have a question about your case, you're not going to have to go through three associates. I'm going to be the one talking to you. We we really value being able to give people that kind of that one-on-one service and being available to them in a way that you really can't do if you're in a bigger office. Just the structure of it doesn't work like that. So it's more personal and relationship-based, um, uh, dealing with the client one-on-one. Yeah. Um, is probably so. What? Give me an example of like one of your toughest cases. I think the hardest cases for us, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define hard. If you mean hard from a legal standpoint or hard because some of these cases can be very emotionally draining. I mean, we we do quite a bit of, we represent uh, quite a few women who have been the targets of sexual harassment in the workplace. And many of them have been, we've had two rape cases, um, which are really, really hard just to be working with the client and having to help the client understand that nothing she did, it's not your fault that you're here or that you lost your job. And, you know, I, I will say that with very few exceptions of the clients we've represented who have been the targets of sexual harassment, they've all been single mothers, almost every oh, single really. So they're, they're trapped, you know, they're making good money. Maybe they live in a small town And so they're trying to balance, well, what might happen if I lose my job? I might lose my kids. I might not be able to pay my mortgage. I might not be able to put food on the table. So, I mean, I think emotionally, our sexual harassment cases are the hardest, followed closely by the cases where we represent employees with disabilities in the workplace. You know, we the term disabled, people often will take umbrage at that. It doesn't mean disabled in the sense that you are not able to do anything. It simply means that you have some substantial impairment. That means that you might need a little help to continue to do the essential functions of your job. So, you know, people struggle with that and, you know, they don't want to be seen to ask for accommodations because it seems like they're they're wearing their disability on their sleeve or using it to kind of get a leg up. And, you know, I always tell people it, it's not a leg up. It's just leveling the playing field. Right. It's getting you know? help when you need it. Right. It's just, you know, because you have autism or PTSD or anything, diabetes, anything that's going to affect the way that you can work, that you can interact with people. But the law says that employers have to be aware of that. And as long as it's not an undue burden for them, they got to work with you. And most of the time, it's not an undue burden. Most of the time, particularly with mental illness cases, 
we see a lot of employers who are just made uncomfortable by it. They don't want to hear about somebody's bipolar disorder or depression or makes people uncomfortable. There's still, I think, very unfortunately, a stigma associated with that. And so, you know, somebody takes a leave to go to rehab or something and employers get really uncomfortable with with some of those those pieces of it. Wow. Oh, man, rape in the workplace. That's tragic. Those have been really, really hard. Um, but I will say, you know, those women to have an opportunity to have their voice heard. I think for them was really powerful. And I've stayed in touch with those clients just on a personal level. And I, you know, I was really proud that I was able to help them have their voices heard. So it takes a lot of courage to do that. It takes a lot of courage to find a lawyer and to say, Hey, this happened. And there's a lot of shame that goes into that. Um, it's not, you know, I, I use the term rape, but I, I think what the employer, I mean, the defense, the employer is always always say is that it was consensual and you know the response to that is well really because you're her boss you're the one who's assessing her performance or evaluating her performance so there really isn't there's a term for it that escapes me at the moment but you know these women were doing something they didn't want to do because they needed to to keep their jobs and there's a lot of shame associated with that for them and so yeah i imagine so do you with you're doing this daily. So do you see anything different happening with employers that change the work environment at all? Yeah, I, mean, I think that the Me Too movement really did help employers kind of get uh, more aware of what that looks like in the workplace and doing training about it. I, I mean, I do think you certainly still hear employers saying, oh, you know, he's just a kid. He didn't mean anything by it or you know, he was just being funny. But I do believe that I'm hearing that less. And I attribute that to the Me Too movement to kind of put a shine a light on some of the abuses that, that happen in the workplace. I see. So and then you have things like PTSD. I mean, uh, gosh, you'd, I mean, are employers more sympathetic to stuff like that? Or are they just kind of like brush it off? Like, well, it's just this employee's issue, you know, or do they kind of bring that to the forefront as well? You know, I think that PTSD, anxiety, depression, some of those, some of the the mental impairments that you really can't see, but that really do affect the way people function. I think those are the ones that are kind of the most stigmatized in the workplace. And so employers you know, I do think it's getting better than it was when I started, when we started our firm, you know, almost 15 years ago. But there's still kind of this piece of, you know, oh, well, either they think it's not, it's not a real thing, right? You know, they just kind of blow it off, or they think it's, they think the employee is being unreasonable, you know, right. and they just don't want to deal with it. I mean, from a management standpoint, if you have an employee taking intermittent FMLA, or depression or something like that it's a it's a headache like i get it but that's kind of beside the point right so with what you do um what do you like best about the legal system i think i like that we do have these fee shifting statutes and that we do have the, the ability to offer this contingent fee litigation which helps people get their voices heard 
you know, I, I mean, we do a lot of work with the immigrant community, particularly in the wage and hour field. And that's not a population that, you know, there, there's some cultural stuff and there's just some sort of practicality stuff. They they don't speak English, so they don't, you know, they don't know how our country's legal system works. And so it's difficult for them to get their voices heard. And I like that the laws give us a way to help magnify those voices but that we can do it in a way that, you know, still puts food on our tables. And, you know, I, I'm a parent as well. Like, I got to feed my kids. Right, right. What do you think is the one thing you would like to change about the legal system? Probably the length of time it takes to move things through the courts. You know, I often tell people that the wheels of justice grind very slowly. And they just do. Employment law is set up to be kind of this two-tiered process. So you have to start at the administrative level, that's the state, um, the state civil rights office, or at the federal level, that's the EEOC. And then you have to exhaust those remedies. And then you get your notice of right to sue. And that's how you get into court. And then once you get into court, you're looking at 18 months, two years. Oh my gosh. Before you get to trial date. And, you know, I think for a lot of my clients, especially, you know, employment law can feel a little bit like family law, I think, just in that our identities are wrapped up in the work that we do. So if somebody, you know, you get fired from a job you've held for 20 years, it feels like a divorce. Right. You yeah. know, and it's just I don't love that these people have to live with this stress for so long in order to have their voices heard. It just seems like you know, I don't really know what the answer is because litigation does take time, but right. it, it can be really frustrating how long these cases take. I see. So what's like one of the most uncommon cases that you've had in your practice? Oh, an uncommon case. I mean, we've certainly had cases with unusual legal issues. We had a case, it's been a number of years now, where we represented a woman who was a, a, a paraprofessional in a public school district. And she had a, she worked with a special education kids. There was a student in the class who was, um, had the mental functioning of about a four year old, but was the size of a 15 year old boy, like a good sized kid. And he touched her inappropriately. And there was an issue about whether that constituted sexual harassment because of the nature of his particular disability. And, you know, our response was we wound up with a hung jury on that one, which was, that's always so painful. And then we were able to get it. We, we didn't have to retry the case. But, you know, I, I mean, my argument was, well, he touched her shoulder. He didn't touch her shoulder. He touched her breast. There's Came down to that simple. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's something there. And I remember, you know, talking with the judge about it after. And he said, yeah, it was a really interesting issue. You know, because it does kind of get into, yeah, these kids... You know, these kids, they deserve our best, but the teachers as well. And, and the teachers shouldn't have to, that shouldn't be part of the job of working with that population of students. Right. Well, then where does it go next? You know? Right. Right. And it so, goes to a whole nother level once, you know, it's, it could be very bad in the future if something wasn't done about that. Huh. Right. So, um, if you were a new lawyer coming in, what would you do different? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, when we started our firm, neither of us were new lawyers. Like we, you know, I have a ton of admiration for lawyers who get out of law school and hang their shingles out because I feel like I got out of law school and I have the foggiest idea how to be a lawyer. 
Like, I mean, you actually have to oh, learn how to be. Right. But I think I probably would have taken more advantage of, you know, some of like the mentoring programs. I'm involved in a mentoring program through Association of Women Lawyers. And I mean, I just, it's, it's been such a rewarding experience working with younger lawyers, but also getting to know the mentors that, you know, the folks of say my age, but again, the people of my level of experience and learning from them. I mean, I think, you know, women in the legal field, we do face challenges that men don't face. I mean, we just do. My partner is a man and, you know, more than once we've had, you know, we walk in together and somebody thinks I'm the court reporter and Mark's there to take the deposition or, you know, I walked into a mediation just the other day and the receptionist for the defense firm said, oh, go have a seat in there. I'll let you know when your lawyer isn't here yet. I'll let you know when he gets here. It's like, actually, I am the lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) We're looking at her. and Let me inform you of something. (laughs) You know, they let ladies be lawyers now. Right. You know, it's crazy. So so I think I would take advantage more of mentoring of opportunities to work with lawyers who had kind of dealt with some of that. that I see. So what's the best advice you ever received? Oh, I think it's what I referred to earlier. The stay in, you know, don't dabble. I really admire these small firms. You know, we call them door lawyers. They do whatever walks in the door. And I mean, hey, more oh, power boy. to you. But I think that, you know, we when we were opening our doors and we were talking about, you know, what kind of law do we want to do and how do we want this to work? You know, this notion of figure out what you like, get really, really good at it and then just keep doing that, you know, and the law keeps changing. So it's not it's not static. I mean, the law is constantly changing in the world of employment law. So it's not like, you know, I don't find it boring, but, you know. I really admire people who can, you know, one day do a divorce and the next day probate an estate and then the next day try a PI case or handle a bankruptcy. But to me, that's stretching yourself too thin. You know, we we wanted to be, we like the notion of a kind of a boutique law firm, which is what we are. I see. So your firm is basically, it's two-sided. It's, you got your legal side that you do your legal work every day and then you have the business side. Yeah. What do you think was like the hardest part about the business side? Probably the marketing and the, you know, keeping the books. And we always refer to that as, you know, working on your business versus working in your business. Right. Exactly. You know, I've it, heard that before. Yeah. You know, I don't have any marketing classes. I don't have a marketing background, you know, and neither does my partner. We don't, I mean, heck, I got out of college, thought I wanted to be a, you know, a literature professor. So my classes were geared towards that. So, you know, we've kind of had to learn some of that stuff on the fly. Like, how do you run a business? And, you know, which is the best bookkeeping program and who should keep the books and things like that. And, you know, there's some great resources through the bar associations, but really we learned a lot from colleagues. I see. Who's your liability carrier? Who do you got? What do you guys do about this? That sort of thing. Yeah, but working, I don't love the working on the business, the working um, on the business part of it. Yeah, that's kind of like the thing that we talk to a lot of people, a lot of business owners, and that is the one thing that it's hard for them, you know, because they're good at what they do. And then the business side is a whole different animal, especially nowadays with 
you know, all the technology involved in things. It's, yeah. it's a lot to keep up with. And it's almost a full-time job just running the business side of things. It does feel like it sometimes as, you know, you're working through, well, where are we getting the best bang for our buck with, you know, marketing efforts? And, you know, have we been updating the website appropriately? And, you know, just, yeah, it. I can certainly see why the bigger firms have, you know, a, a position that's entirely dedicated to firm management. Right. So in uh, terms of how do you find clients, what's, how do you find them? What's the most effective way for you guys? Well, you know, we're still working on that. We get quite a bit of hits through our website. Um, we get a lot of word of mouth. Um, our practice, we're licensed. We're both licensed in Kansas and Missouri. Um, a lot of folks won't take Kansas employment cases because the Kansas state law prohibiting discrimination is relatively toothless in terms of how the damages are calculated. So we wind up in federal court. Federal court can be a pretty hostile place if you're a plaintiff. Um, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that we have some fairly conservative judges on the bench and you have to have a unanimous jury in federal court. So that's a little bit more of a challenge than in state court. So we do get Kansas cases from colleagues who would rather not, excuse me, practice there. And we get, you know, we, we advertise on, you know, fine law and AVVO and we have a website and, you know, a lot of word of mouth too. We get clients who call and say, Hey, you represented my cousin's neighbor three years ago. Can you talk to me about something like that? So. Right. That's probably where them personal one-on-one relationships come in real handy is the word of mouth referrals. Yeah, I absolutely think that. And we do, you know, you know, we always say, we're not the kind of firm that wants to retain clients, right? Like, like if you've been fired for more than one job, I'm going to start wondering what the common denominator is. Right. You know? But I do want to have, I do, it's really important to me that my clients feel supported, that they know, you know, look, I got your back, whether we settle, whether we litigate, I got your back. I'm going to let you make that decision. I'm going to let you make that internal risk management decision. I mean, I can tell you, why I think you should take this settlement, but ultimately it's going to be, you know, I tell people I give advice, not instructions. You know, I can't tell you, yes, you must settle this or no, you may not, but I can tell, I can recommend what I think is the right thing to do. But it's, it's really important to me that people feel like I'm listening to them. Yeah. You've got somebody in your corner that's, you know, I've heard people say it's really scary for me to see my employer again. Well, yeah, that's my job. Let me do that. For you. I'm not emotionally tied in there. Right. What's like one of your biggest cases that you've had? Probably, well, I mean, we, we had a case that we tried. It's been some time. Uh, we represented some uh, folks who uh, were from, they were Guatemalan nationals and there was some wage theft going on. And there was an issue in the case about whether the Fair Labor Standards Act applied to them because of their lack of documentation to be in this country. And we tried the case to a jury in the Eastern Western District of Missouri. We won. We won at the Ace Circuit. Um, got to argue the case on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to me. <laughs> um, and then the defendant um, actually uh, petitioned for cert to the Supreme Court. And the court turned it down. And so it was new law. This issue had not been addressed in the Eighth Circuit before. And so we were we were really proud to have been part of making that new law that made it very clear that it doesn't matter your documented status. If you are in this country and you did the work, you need to be paid for it. I mean, frankly, I'm still a little astonished that anybody would make the argument that that you wouldn't. 
But right. that argument was made. I mean, I, so windfall for the employer, slave labor. I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with your argument. Right. Um, wow. So, yeah, that, that's probably the case that, you know, having had an opportunity to make good law around that was that was really meaningful stuff for us. Yeah, that's uh, you make law. That's that's huge. Yeah. Huge. It, it, well, um what do you think is the craziest thing you deal with on a daily basis? That's an interesting question. The craziest thing we deal with, you know, it just really, it, it really depends on day to day. Cause you, you know, know, you can, you can, you probably run into some really wild stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes it's, you know, it's the CEO of a multi-million dollar company showing up for a deposition in a torn hoodie and torn sweats. I think trying to make a statement to us that he didn't believe that we had a solid case or something like that. Right. Um, and you know, sometimes we have clients making that, you know, who are not exercising good judgment and oh. you know, there's not a lot you can do about that. Right. A client who turned down a settlement because, well, I don't know if he's turned down the settlement. The thing is sort of hanging in limbo. <laughs> he says he wasn't informed that he had to pay taxes on lost wages. And oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. I mean, have you ever not paid taxes on lost on wages? I mean, yeah. why, why would you think that this would be any different? I mean, just things like that where you're thinking you're a really highly educated, really intelligent person. Why are we having this conversation? And by right. the way, he is in writing three different places where I told you, about the tax implications. Right. And at some point you would think you'd have to get an accountant or a CPA involved, you know. And I, you know, I, I mean, I'm very clear with my clients. And I mean, I'm a lot of things. The tax expert is not one of them. So, you know, if you have questions, you need to talk to, to a tax expert, whether that's oh. a tax lawyer or a CPA or something. But yeah, it was just stunning to me that this individual, despite all his education, was completely aghast that he would have to pay taxes on a settlement. Oh my gosh. It's just hard for me to get my mind around. I feel like that situation is one more where they're just kind of avoiding it and they just don't want to do it. They don't want to pay it. You know, I think like sometimes you get people like that that it's just, they just don't want to pay it, you know, and that's kind of where they're coming from. And then, then they play like, well, I didn't know. And that's not right. the case. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't especially love paying my taxes either. <laughs> I, mean, I, I do it because, you know, I don't want to go to jail. It's not exactly <laughs> the biggest joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean. So uh, tell us a little bit. How can people find you? Do you? Your website, how to get a hold of you, contact you. Yeah. Um, emails. Well, I mean, are, you're certainly welcome to get on our website. We are in the process of kind of reworking that. Um, but we do have a contact us button on our website where people can click and give us a little summary of, of what's going on in their case. You're certainly welcome to call us. Um, generally, Julie Rose, our wonderful paralegal, does our intakes. So she would be the person to call and kind of get the basics. And then we would follow up. Um, sending an email directly to me at heather at duganschlossman.com or my partner, Mark, at mark at duganschlossman.com. Um, we're really good about answering emails. You know, we, we have a, a standing joke that we're a 24 hour law firm. 
because Mark is a night owl and I'm an early bird. So there have been times when he works till, you know, three in the morning and I'm up at four in the morning working. So it's like, you know, we just tag team. And, and well, That's a great trade-off there. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But, but we are really responsive on email um, and, and on phone calls. So that, that's probably the best way to reach us, either, either of those options. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, Heather, appreciate you being on. Heather Schlossman today on Case Closed, Contingency Fees. Appreciate you being on, Heather, and uh, you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Good to meet you. Yes, you too. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed Podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 